You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 363 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And as the Strawfoot Brigade found out yesterday when we released a new members episode, Tracy has the weekend off. Well, from podcast duties that is, but she has quite a bit of work to do this weekend for her day job, so the podcast boss said that she could take a pass on doing the show and that I'd be flying solo. So you're stuck with me. Sorry. I'm sure you aren't any happier about that than I am. As I've said before, when you get used to, through recording hundreds of shows, you get used to doing it with two people. And so it's always a bit discombobulating to sit down and do it by yourself. But it's all good. Anyway, we're on to day three of the Battle of Gettysburg, Friday, July 3rd, 1863. As we said at the end of the last show, the third day at Gettysburg is best remembered for Pickett's Charge, of course. But on July 3rd, there was also hours of combat on Culp's Hill, some deadly skirmishing between the lines throughout the morning, particularly around the Bliss Farm, and no less than four cavalry engagements scattered around here and there. So, that means we have quite a bit to cover with regard to the third day of the battle, and cover it we will, because after two days of bloody fighting, the battle's final outcome was still as uncertain as it had been when the first shot was fired. As we get started with our coverage of day three of the battle, we thought we'd just clear up a bit of terminology, because although some people refer to the big Confederate attack launched against the center of the Federal line along Cemetery Ridge as the picket Pettigrew trimble Charge, or even Longstreet's Second Assault, we, here on the podcast, will stick with calling it Pickett's Charge, if that's okay with all of you. But no matter how one refers to it, that attack remains, without question, the Civil War's most legendary charge, 
and has naturally come to dominate the history of the third day of the battle. But, and we find this terribly interesting, Pickett's charge was not Robert E. Lee's original plan for the day. I know. What? But it's true. If you guys will recall, we said that Lee's report stated that, as far as July 3rd, quote, It was determined to continue the attack. The general plan was unchanged. End quote. The key there is not that his decision was to continue attacking. I mean, that's not a shocker, right? Lee's thought was that after two days of terrific combat, he was close to achieving the crushing battlefield victory he'd come north seeking. Lee believed that his army's assaults the previous day, on July 2nd, had come close, very close, to smashing the Federal lines. So, it's no surprise Lee decided to continue hammering the enemy on July 3rd. But when Lee said, the general plan was unchanged, it's important to understand that his original plan for day three of the battle wasn't Pickett's charge. Instead, the Confederate commander wanted to simply pick back up where the previous day had left off. That is, by renewing the attack at daybreak with a simultaneous advance by both Longstreet on the right and Yule on the left. For now, suffice it to say that, as was the case on July 2nd, things again went poorly for Lee on July 3rd. The fighting did commence at daybreak on the 3rd, but it was actually the Federals who delivered the first punch. Determined to regain their entrenchments lost the night before on Culp's Hill and to drive the rebels from that important position, the Union soldiers of the 12th Corps were ready to launch an attack at the crack of dawn on this part of the battlefield. Late on the night of July 2nd, the soldiers in blue of the Federal 12th Corps, who had been sent south to the opposite end of the Union line in response to the crisis caused by Sickles' unauthorized movement of the 3rd Corps, now trudged in the moonlight back to their original positions on Culp's Hill. However, as they approached their previous positions on the lower summit of Culp's Hill, Musket fire rang out, briefly lighting up the darkness. Well, believing that they were the victims of friendly fire, that is, that they had been mistakenly fired on by Pap Green's New Yorkers, who had been left alone on the hilltop, several 12th Corps officers continued to probe forward, triggering even more fire. It wasn't until a number of Federal soldiers were either killed or wounded that they finally realized that their old entrenchments were now occupied by Confederate troops. This rather disconcerting discovery was reported to Brigadier General Alpheus Williams, who was acting as battlefield commander of the 12th Corps, who passed the news up to Henry Slocum, 
who was the actual leader of the 12th Corps, but who, rightly or wrongly, believed he was supposed to be acting as a wing commander. Well, be that as it may, Slocum's reply to Williams' report was short and simple. Quote, Well, drive them out at daylight. End quote. Alpheus Williams, being a rather level-headed and sensible officer, noted that such an order was easier said than done. In any case, there'd be little rest that night for Williams or his men. In the darkness, in an effort to re-establish contact with Green and patch together a new line, Williams' weary men stumbled over rocks and around trees and boulders, ducking and dodging every now and then from the sporadic fire of Maryland Stewart's nervous confederates who were now occupying the entrenchments on Culp's lower summit. The Ohioans and Pennsylvanians, in the ranks of Kane's and Candy's brigades, both of Geary's division, formed up to the right of Green's New Yorkers, while Alpheus Williams' own division, led by Brigadier General Thomas Ruger, connected to the right of Geary's men and stretched the 12th Corps line farther south to McAllister's Woods. While his men stumbled and fumbled their way into position, Williams gathered his subordinates and explained his plan to drive the rebels out at daylight. He explained, quote, We will hold the position we now have until morning. Then from these hills back of us, we will shell hell out of them. End quote. Following that artillery barrage, the Federal Infantry was to then advance. After seeing to the placement of more than two dozen cannon on nearby Powers and McAllister's hills, Williams finally lay down on Flat Rock under an apple tree in the hopes of getting just a little sleep. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. 
And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Alpheus Williams and his 12th Corps soldiers weren't the only ones preparing to carry out an early morning attack on Culp's Hill. Having received orders from Robert E. Lee to renew the fight on his front at daybreak on July 3rd, Dick Yule, late on the night of the 2nd, met with his lieutenants and worked out a plan on how to best go about striking the Yankees again. Several of Yule's subordinates objected to a renewal of the attack. They believed the enemy positions on Culp's and Cemetery Hills were too strong. However, Yule disagreed. He believed the Federal lines could be broken if attacked again. The only question was where to strike. Harry Hayes, whose Louisianans had suffered heavy losses in the twilight attack up the slopes of Cemetery Hill, argued that it would be useless to try that again, and Yule agreed. That meant the attack on July 3rd would be carried out on Allegheny Johnson's front, against Culp's Hill, where some of his men at least had a foothold on the lower summit. In preparation for this attack, Yule added more men to Johnson's lines. Overnight, O'Neill's and Daniel's brigades from Rhodes Division were sent over, as well as three of extra Billy Smith's regiments from Early's Division. In addition, with the belated arrival of Jeb Stewart's cavalry at Gettysburg, the Stonewall Brigade had been relieved of its duties protecting the Army's far left flank, so Johnson would also have it on hand at daybreak. The addition of those extra units essentially doubled the number of troops that Allegheny Johnson would have at his disposal for the attack on the morning of the 3rd. But, with the return of the Federal 12th Corps soldiers to the scene late on July 2nd, the Confederates attacking Culp's Hill would actually now be confronting equal numbers of Yankees, not just Green's sole brigade of New Yorkers. And the rebels, of course, would also still be attacking what was still a formidable defensive position. On the other side of the lines, Alpheus Williams awoke after just a half hour's rest and at 4.30 a.m. gave the command for the Federal artillery to open fire. The blasts from the 26 guns shattered the still morning air, hurling shot and shell at the rebels on the lower summit of Culp's Hill. The Confederate soldiers of Marilyn Stewart's brigade, on the left of Allegheny Johnson's line and occupying the entrenchments there, were particularly exposed to the incoming artillery fire. Lieutenant John Stone of the 1st Maryland, CSA, said that, quote, at times, one could feel the earth tremble, so fearful was the cannonading. 
Another Confederate remembered that the solid shot, quote, could be heard to strike the breastworks like hailstones upon the rooftops. For 15 minutes, the Federal gunners kept up a relentless barrage in this one-sided contest, since there were no rebel guns in position to return fire. Then, as the Union guns ceased fire and the smoke began to clear, Williams expected his infantry to advance, but the Confederate soldiers beat them to the punch, surging forward first. The Virginians of John M. Jones' brigade, commanded now by Colonel Robert Dungan in place of the wounded Jones, led off the Confederate attack on the far right of Johnson's line. To their left advanced the Louisianans under Jesse Williams and the Alabamans from Edward O'Neill's brigade. They advanced, said Allegheny Johnson, with quote-unquote, great determination, up the steep hillside, over ground that was littered with their dead comrades from the previous evening's battle. Up they went, toward the same strong federal position that had been unsuccessfully assaulted on the second. On the federal side of the lines, with their own attack preempted by the rebel advance, the men of the 12th Corps were quite content to remain shielded behind their earthworks. They hunkered down and leveled their muskets on the log parapets and opened a murderous fire on the advancing Confederates. Soon enough, one of the rebels remembered, quote, the whole hillside seemed enveloped in a blaze, end quote. And the bitter fighting here would continue without let up for the next six and a half hours, with the two sides slugging it out on Culp's Hill in what proved to be the most sustained stretch of combat of the entire three days at Gettysburg. From his headquarters over yonder on Seminary Ridge, Robert E. Lee could hear the sounds of battle coming from the direction of Culp's Hill. He had worked out his plan for July 3rd late the night before and had sent out the necessary orders. As he later explained it, the general plan was unchanged. Yule was to renew the fight at daybreak against the Federal right, while Longstreet, reinforced by the arrival of George Pickett's Division of Virginians, would pick back up from where his big attack had left off, and with the three divisions of his corps now together, he would roll up the Union position on Cemetery Ridge. With the sounds of fighting drifting in from Ewell's front early that Friday morning, Lee was satisfied that at least one of his corps commanders was faithfully carrying out his orders and so he mounted his horse and rode south toward Longstreet's position, expecting to see those troops moving to attack the enemy as well. His hopes for July 3rd were that his orders would be better executed and that his army's attacks would be better coordinated than they had been the previous day. But as he rode south along Seminary Ridge toward Longstreet's headquarters, Lee was no doubt troubled by finding this part of his lines 
quiet. Hood's and McClaw's men were not in motion, and Pickett's division was nowhere to be found. The puzzled Confederate commander soon found Longstreet, who explained that he was just then preparing to swing around the Federal left. Old Pete explained, General, I've had my scouts out all night, and I find that you still have an excellent opportunity to move around Meade's army and maneuver him into attacking us. Well, Lee, his patience surely wearing thin, immediately shot down this idea of Longstreet's, again, and, pointing towards Cemetery Ridge, he emphatically told Longstreet, The enemy is there, and I am going to strike him. With the morning already wearing away, and with Yule's fight for Culp's Hill continuing to rage, Lee's first thought was simply to await the arrival of Pickett's division, which was just then coming up from its bivouac sites four miles away, and once it arrived, to then have Longstreet advance as planned with his entire corps. But Longstreet objected, pointing out that Hood's and McClaw's divisions had been badly cut up the day before, suffering more than 4,000 casualties, and that if those two formations advanced today as Lee proposed, it would simply expose the Confederate Army's right and rear to Federal troops posted on Little Round Top, offering an inviting target to Meade. It was now apparent to a surely disappointed and annoyed Lee that he would have to fashion an entirely new plan of attack here for striking the Federals across the way. Looking eastward and scanning Cemetery Ridge as the sun continued to climb into the sky, the Confederate commander ultimately decided to strike directly against the center of the enemy's lines, which he thought must be the weakest part of the Yankees' position, after they had drawn off troops to reinforce the right and left ends of their lines on July 2nd. And so now, here on the 3rd, with his original plan for Longstreet now scrapped, Lee decided that Plan B would be for Pickett's three brigades, along with six others from A.P. Hill's Corps, to make a massive assault directly against the Union Center. To weaken the Federal lines on Cemetery Ridge further, this attack would be preceded by a tremendous artillery bombardment, using every gun the Confederates could bring to bear. Longstreet listened patiently as Lee explained the new plan, a plan to hurl 15,000 men directly against the enemy center, there three-quarters of a mile away, across open, rolling ground. Feeling it was his duty as Robert E. Lee's second-in-command to voice his objections, Old Pete famously told Lee, General, I've been a soldier all my life. I've been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, divisions, and armies, and should know, as well as anyone, what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men 
ever arrayed for battle, can take that position. But Robert E. Lee would not be deterred. The attack would proceed, and Longstreet, despite his objections, would be the one to oversee it. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg Rebels, Five Native Sons Who Came Home to Fight as Confederate Soldiers, by Tom McMillan. In Gettysburg Rebels, McMillan tells the story of five young men who grew up in Gettysburg, moved south to Virginia in the 1850s, and returned home as Confederate soldiers in 1863 as part of Lee's invading army. One of those five was Wesley Culp. On July 3rd, on the far right of Allegheny Johnson's line at Culp's Hill, the 2nd Virginia had a relatively easy time of it, suffering a total of only 20 casualties, of whom one man was killed. That one KIA was Wesley Culp. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the podcast website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon. And thanks to the newest members who signed up this past week. Andy A, Tori C, Jersey S, Sean B, Paul H, David A, Raymond B, and Patrick B. And thanks to John M for his donation. Oh, and as I mentioned earlier, yesterday we released members episode number 121, The Life and Death of Samuel Zook. You may recall that here in the regular episodes, we mentioned that as part of the 2nd Corps reinforcements sent over to help out the 3rd Corps, Brigadier General Samuel Zook was mortally wounded in the fighting for the wheat field on July 2nd. And we used this members episode to take a closer look at him and his story. Okay, I think that's about it for this show. We did it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.